as the world has become more comfortable in a lot of ways, I mean, just think of your everyday life and how much different it is than life of a person a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, thousand years ago, we've lost a lot of things that uh, made us healthy and made us happy. Right. So we've engineered effort out of our lives. Our food system is all the super calorie dense comfort food. We no longer have to do, you know, big epic challenges in nature like we used to. And that's changed us and often not for the best. So the book is essentially kind of an argument about why we need these moments that push back at us, why we need to step out of our comfort zones sometimes. Welcome to the Darren Woodson Show. I'm still debating that name. Every time I say it, I'm like, this doesn't feel right. What? It should be the Ben Gibbs Show. Oh, it should be. Might as well be. May as well be. You handle everything and you try to hog everything up. Even today's guest, you try to yeah. hog him up. Yeah. We're, yeah. Speaking of today's guest, we are here with Michael Easter, who is the author of, you can see it, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see it up there in the, the corner of his screen, The Comfort Crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael is the leading voice on how humans can integrate modern science and evolutionary wisdom for improved health, meaning, and performance in life and at work. If that's not a powerful statement about what you do, I don't know what is. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome, man. Hey, man, Mike, congratulations, man, on the book. Uh, look, I, you know, can I call you Mike, or you do you go by Mike or Michael? You can call me Mike. So my, so the, the story is funny is my mom, she said she wouldn't have named me Michael had she known that people were going to call oh, me Mike. Mike. And so right. she used to give my friends a dollar bill every time they would call me Michael, but right. I, I don't <laughs> care. You know, Darren's also notorious for that. If, if it's a, if it's a Patrick or a, or a Steven, he's yeah, calling him short. Pat, he's hey, calling him Steve. From the hood, dog, that's how we do. Everything is shortened. <laughs> like we don't want to go, go through that whole process, man. Yeah. But hey man, we, we appreciate having you on. Uh, today and, and normally we go through the entire journey yeah. and and we want to you know talk to you and talk about your childhood and then go through the process of why you wrote this book but there's so much meat on this bone today uh of of the book and 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 where I am right now in the book man I, I just if, if you are out there today and you're listening to this podcast today shame on you if you don't go uh, purchase uh, the comfort crisis yeah Shame on you because it will change the way you think. And it definitely has changed the way uh, how I perceive Mm -hmm. life and the way I've lived my life uh, for 52 years. Uh, So I want to jump into this and Ben, if you. Yeah, no, we're going to get to the book. But as Darren said, as he touched on, what we're big on is is the journey. We want to understand how did you get to this point? So take us back to life growing up. What was life like growing up? What was your family life like? You mentioned in the book, but let, let's highlight it for people here listening today. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for the amazingly kind words about the book. Um, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. it. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Utah, uh, just north of Salt Lake City. So <clears throat> I actually grew up in a single parent home. Uh, my dad sort of walked out on the family early. Uh, but the good news is that I had a really cool, strong mom. Like she was, she was tough and she worked really hard and she taught me a lot. Um, <clears throat> now <laughs> the men in my family, as I talk about in the book, they are a rowdy crew. Mm. 
They are drinkers. They all have a nice long arrest record. Um, my dad walked out on the family because, you know, he could never really stay sober, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of crazy family stories that I talk about in the book. And, you know, some of them are funny. Um, and I started to find myself in my own life sort of living like that at a certain point. Um, I was just, you know, I was drinking too much, that sort of thing. And I did that, I think, because alcohol is comforting, right? Mm -hmm. If you have like a gene like mine, when you drink, it's like, oh, this makes my world a little more colorful. This makes me feel more comfortable around people. This Mm -hmm. makes things, everything easier to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, drinking made the world easier than not drinking, right? Right. And that worked until it didn't. (laughs) And then once that eventually just stops working full stop and starts to kind of just tear your life apart. So I had to get sober, you know? And, um, that was the most uncomfortable thing I'd ever done in my life. Cause now all of a sudden it's like, well, I had this thing that seemed to work mm-hmm. for everything and now it doesn't work anymore. And I have to go through this whole like relearning of life and how do you live it, et cetera. Um, but by going through that, I sort of could see that, Hey, you know, when you have to go through something exceedingly uncomfortable, usually you come out on the other side an improved person. And I was Mm -hmm. like full stop, like everything in my life was better work relationships. um, Even just how I felt about myself, like my spirituality, all that kind of stuff, just full stop better. And um, after that, and I'm sure we'll kind of, we'll get into this. um, I had a bunch of experiences through work uh, that helped me come up with this idea for this book. And the book is called the comfort crisis. And it's basically about how, as the world has become more comfortable in a lot of ways, I mean, just think of your everyday life and how much different it is than life of a person a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, thousand years ago, we've lost a lot of things that uh, made us healthy and made us happy. Right. So we've engineered effort out of our lives. Our food system is all the super calorie dense comfort food. We no longer have to do, you know, big epic challenges in nature like we used to. And that's changed us and often not for the best. So the book is essentially kind of an argument about why we need these moments that push back at us, why we need to step out of our comfort zone sometimes. Yeah. Right. So yeah. we're going to go back. So let, let's go back to that because there's so much meat on that bone as far as, you know, how the family dynamics single mom, uh, you had men, your uncles, there were your uncles that were in your life that were, you know, drinkers. I I went through the same process, a single parent. I had uncles that were alcoholics that were in my life. And I saw that. So when did, when do you remember having your first drink? I was about 15, I think. Mm. And, um, it was one of those things where, you know, you growing up, you feel a little unsure of yourself. You kind of were like, what is, you know, what's my role here? Right. When you have a drink and you're like me, it's like, oh, well, there's the solution. Right. This, this fixed it, you know, mm-hmm. let's yep. do this again. And so that becomes a, that, like I said, that, that essentially works until it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for you, it was drinking, but for the rest of us or some of us, it's pornography. It's, uh, you know, other hard drugs. It, it doesn't matter what it is. I think you're right that at that age, you're just trying to figure out your way. You're trying to figure out where you fit. And so, yeah. for, again, for some people, it's alcohol or other drug of choice. It doesn't matter. It, it is an interesting thing that we, I don't know, and maybe you've, you've done research on this. I wonder if why we're not taught to look within, why we always look for external sources mm-hmm. to figure out who we are, quote unquote. 
Well, finding something on the outside, I think is much easier. Right. right. Yeah. So the, the writer, David Foster Wallace said, you know, everyone worships something. Mm-hmm. And so for, you know, for me, that was, uh, alcohol fixed my problems, but for, to your point, pornography, but also even things like buying stuff like shopping right Right. it's like it fills this quick like oh now i feel better and then you got to go buy the next thing whatever but i it's difficult to um introspect and uh sort of learn what is this underlying thing and i also think that when you look at how humans evolved we try and do the easiest most uh comfortable thing we can because Mm -hmm. that used to serve us in these environments that we involved in where life was inherently challenging and hard and uncomfortable. So by having a drive to, for example, um, not use physical effort when we didn't have to, Uh that, that saved calories, kept us alive to eat more than we really needed to. That way, when we faced sort of lean times, we would be prepared for that. All these different things on and on. Uh, but nowadays that we're in this comfortable world that the, the stuff just doesn't serve us anymore. So the, you know, if you talk to some of the dorky anthropologists, they'll tell you uh, their official term is that this is an evolutionary mismatch more right, or less. Right. So this drive for ease in an easy world backfires. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, reading your book and then talking to you today and just the little bit we know about you, it, it's hard to believe that that was a past life that you struggle with. So what was that moment that you spoke on earlier that, that led you to, okay, I got to make a change here. Was it one moment? Was it a series of events? Mm. What led you to say, I've got to change something? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's a series of events, you know, and it was one of those where I realized relatively early on in my life, maybe when I was like 21, that I had a problem mm-hmm. because it's like, you know, I, I like to say that my, my favorite drink was always the next one. You know, <laughs> <laughs> once you have one, it's like, man, if one's good, how would two be? And then right. when you're at two, it's three and so on and so forth. Yep. Um, so, and that has repercussions like mm-hmm. just across the board. And, you know, I tried to, uh, quit a handful of times, tried a bunch of wacky methods. Uh And, um, for whatever reason, one morning when I was 28 years old, I woke up and I'd had plenty of mornings like this in the past. My house was a mess, you know, Uh I'd like thrown up and it just felt like, you know, things were coming down, but this time for whatever reason, I don't know, I could very, very, very clearly see this is like the first time I'd experienced like what, what felt like real clarity that uh, I could see two paths. I could keep drinking. I could do the comfortable thing that I was familiar with that would be much easier. And, um, you know, eventually I'd probably end up dying early, you know, whether it was 35, 55 or 75, mm. like I say in the book, like mm. I didn't know, but I just knew that drinking was going to end me early. But at the same time, that was, that would be pretty easy to keep doing that. Um, or I could take this other path that was like the unknown, that was the uncomfortable route, the route that was going to be hard and challenging. And that would be to try and sober up. And I realized that, look, like, I don't know what I'm getting into. I don't know if I can do it. I know it's going to be really hard, but if I do this, I think there's something there. I think Mm -hmm. that my life will probably be better. I think I probably won't uh, die quite as young. Um, So I'm going to try this thing, you know, and here I am. So going back on that, were you a kid as far as growing up, were you a kid that took chances on self? Like, I mean, to go through that by yourself, 
or to have that thought process to go through this by yourself like hey like you know here's here are my choices most of the time it's someone who takes you there someone normally takes you there as as an accountability partner and says hey you have a problem let's go fix that there was no intervention this is your thoughts by yourself previously in as far as a child we had you you know, were you that kind of kid that always said, you know, by yourself, like I didn't need someone to make help me make a decision. I could do this on my own. I would say I had some good models. So, for example, when my mother and my father uh, met and got married, they were both drinking, using drugs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the funny story is that um, my dad went to rehab at one point and while he was in rehab, they had given my mom some like materials to like sort of learn what, what was wrong with him and what he was going through. And she's like, you know, one, one night I'm sitting in the tub and I'm drinking a gin and tonic and I'm reading this stuff. And she goes, Oh wait, no, this is totally, this sounds exactly like me. Right. So she she realized that she has a problem too. Right. right? And um, she ended up getting sober about two years before she had me, maybe one or two years. Yeah. So growing up around that, you know, she would talk about, it's not like she'd give me all kinds of details, but like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't, you know, I don't drink because X, Y, Z. And I could only assume that my father wasn't around because he had continued drinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rehab didn't take. So when I realized that, you know, I needed to get sober, I called my mom, which said, Mm -hmm. Hey, like, here's where I'm at. And I'd obviously hidden this from her. I mean, it was like total shock to her. Um, And, you know, she said, you are not, a bad person. You're just a sick person. And we just started, you know, talking things out. And I talked to some other people who'd been in situations like I had, and that was helpful because I could like, I could identify with those people and be like, Oh yeah. You know, you sound a lot like me and getting advice from people who'd been there was, I mean, I definitely didn't do it on my own. And and it wasn't like a white knuckle thing. I needed advice, you know, I needed help. And I think that's part of it too. It's uncomfortable to ask for help. Yes, it is. I think it's, I think especially um, for men in particular, like we don't like to ask for help. This goes from like fixing something to directions to anything. Like I don't want to ask for help, right. but we, you have to, you right. know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's humbling yourself to admit either a, you don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's what it is. You just, you, I, I don't know the answer. I, I'm going to humbly ask for advice or ask for help. So, yeah. so you decide at this, at this moment that, Hey, it's, it's time to, time to, turn the things around. Where do you go from there? How did you, what, what did that process look like of getting, you, getting sober? You know, before we go there, before we go there, I, I wanted to say something to you, Mike, because one of the things that stuck out to me in, in, in the book, and you were fully transparent, man. And it was, it wasn't hard to read, man, but it was sad. It was a moment in the book where like I sat there and I thought, man, this, I put myself in your shoes and you were talking about being locked out of the house. And you would go to your friend's house and your mother was drinking inside the house, but she would lock you out so that you couldn't get in. I don't think this is me. Uh-oh. No, was else. it, huh? <laughs> okay, it might be something else. <laughs> I'm no, my, about <laughs> <laughs> my mom, we will see, edit this that, out. That tells, <laughs> like, that tells you a lot of people have... Um, you know, your, your past can affect you and those sort yeah. of like genes you have, you know, yeah. someone raised in that environment with those genes is likely going to have, um, something like I did. Uh, luckily my mom, you know, like I said, she 
sobered up and she yeah, was like, yeah. we were better for it. You and know what? You're right. I was reading something. I know what I was reading on the plane on the way. And I was thinking of something else. I, look, we're going to edit that out. We're going to start this. <laughs> <laughs> we will start no that out, man. <laughs> okay. So let's go back, Ben, to your question. <laughs> <laughs> we're keeping this in. No, we're not. No, what, no, what, what, I, was, not. what I was getting to is you, you, you have this moment and you realize, hey, I need to change my life. What did the process look like from there to get yourself clean and sober? Uh, I found a guy in my neighborhood who, um, had a similar background as me. He was sober. He was, um, he was, uh, probably 60, I would say. So I was 28, he's 60 and, but he had gotten sober when he was my age. He was like 28 years old. And I just leaned on him with advice. I mean, right when you get sober, it's like, you have all these questions in your head, right? It's like, okay, how do I not drink? Uh what do I do if I'm at a party and someone says, would you like a drink? What am I going to do at my college reunion? And he would be like, well, you don't drink. Just don't drink today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Uh, If you're at a party and someone asks you if you want a drink, how about saying no, thanks. Like that works. That's pretty easy. Right. (laughs) Right. But like when you're me, it's just like, Oh, you you can say no, thanks. Okay. You know? And then like with the college thing, it's like, again, it's, well, cross that bridge when you get to it, bud. Just worry yeah. about not drinking today. And what was fascinating is he, you know, he he agreed to help me. And I found out like a few weeks into just, you know, talking with him and learning from him, he had he had uh cancer. Mm. And like he was literally dying. And he he said yes to helping me. And like this is this is a guy at the end of his life. And wow. I didn't know that. And I mean, that's pretty damn powerful that he would take these moments he had that were very limited Uh and he was aware of that and work with some random kid who needed help. Uh, He ended up passing away maybe a year and a half into me knowing him, Uh but he sort of set a foundation of, of how can I get through this? What are some of the things I can do? And also, you know, he taught me that you got to help others too. So that's been a big thing that's helped me. I help, um, you know, like he did, uh, if people come to me and I've had a lot of people, um, (laughs) once it becomes public that you don't, um, drink anymore, you get a lot of outreach from people who are like, Hey, how'd you do that? Uh Or, Hey, I think I need to think about this too. What did you do? So helping others, I think too, and trying to get out of myself has really cemented it because now too, I have this like network of people that I rely on that rely mm-hmm. on me and I can't go back out. Cause right. what about this dude who called me two weeks ago who I'm supposed to talk to tomorrow? Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. So what did it, did you say you, I, sorry, I, the, the book was a few weeks ago. Did you say you completely quit cold Turkey? You never had another drink yeah, again? Never. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think so like some, I said, it's not like I'm the, I'm not the type of person that can go, yeah, I'll go to a bar and I'll have one beer. Right. I mean, I could tell myself that. Yeah. But right. once I have one, something happens in my brain where I go, yeah, we're, yeah. so we're going to order that other one. So is every day a challenge? Not anymore. No. Um, you know, I'm pretty confident that I'm, you know, not going to drink today or tomorrow, but right. I, I, but I also stay vigilant. That doesn't mean that I like, you know, I'm aware that this, this thing is out there and I got, I have that gear. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, like I said, helping others, um, being conscious of it, but no, it's not like I'm like, 
Oh, I, I want to drink today. Like, no, I can, I can think in fact, like sometimes it's, it's good. It's really good for me to work with people who are just getting sober. Cause you go, it's that reminder of like, mm-hmm. oh man, it gets, yeah. I remember when I was like that, holy crap. And it reminds you, mm-hmm. you know, right. why, why you have to stay vigilant. Yeah. You know, it's funny you, and I've said this before, you, you mentioned helping other people was something that, that really pulled you out of that. And we've done so many of these interviews and no matter the story, no matter the background, it always ends up funneling back down to service of others. That ends up being a common theme with Mm -hmm. everybody that we talk to. That's so true of how helpful it is for them, whatever they're going through to serve other people. So I love that you said that. So that takes us to it, you know, a, a point where you start to get into, you know, research and fitness and things like that and wanting to change your life for the better and, and replace those habits with healthy habits. Talk to us about the book, how, what led up to the, to writing the book and then all those, you know, instances that you talk about in that book. Yeah. So, I mean, what was interesting is I was totally a professional hypocrite at this time. Cause I was working at men's health magazine as their fitness editor yeah. this whole time that I was like <laughs> drinking and I ended up getting sober when I was in that job. Um, so at Men's Health, I had kind of noticed, look, like most of these things that we write about that improve people, they all take going through some form of discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I want to get, improve my fitness, uh, I'm going to have to work out. And that's pretty uncomfortable to do that. If I want to lose weight, I'm probably going to have to be hungry. Yeah, That's uncomfortable. Um, even just improving relationships, you know, when we write about that kind of stuff, that there's usually some discomfort that happens as you sort of correct for whatever is happening. And so I noticed that, right. Kind of file it away. And then I go through sobriety and I could see like, Oh man, that really cemented it. Like to improve, you you usually got to go through some discomfort, get out of your comfort zone. And then I get sent um, on this story for men's health with this guy whose name is Donnie Vincent. And he is a backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker. So he makes these hunting documentaries that are basically like, planet earth mm-hmm. except with hunting like they're beautiful and the way he hunts is he's very uh reverent about it so his background is he's a biologist he you know he only hunts older species he's not hunting for like the trophies and stuff like for him it is a very um i would say spiritual act mm-hmm. that almost taps into like something we've lost in our past so i become friends with donnie i get sent on a story where i go um profile him on this hunt in Nevada. We hit it off. He calls me up afterwards and he's like, Hey, so I'm going up to the Arctic for more than a month. You know, do you want to come along? I'm like, uh, you said no, Michael, tell them, I'll be honest. You said no. At some point first, you probably had to run it by your wife first, right? Oh yeah. yeah she's, she's, she's pretty cool. She's, she's been a saint actually. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you this later about what she was doing while I was up in the Arctic. Cause it's pretty funny. Um, but so anyways, uh, I say, all right, you know, I sign on and I'm like, he goes, this is, you know, this is going to be a lot more dangerous than it was in Nevada. Right. Cause we were up there for like five days and you know, it was pretty rough and tumble, but it wasn't anything crazy, crazy. And I go, yeah, you know, how much more dangerous and he goes about 20 times. And I go, <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I think I could probably handle 20 times. It's not too bad. I thought you were going to say like 50 and he goes, well, it could be 50. <laughs> could be 70. Could be 90, Michael. Uh, <laughs> yeah. like, oh, God. Okay. But I'm in right. 
so we go up there and um it was uncomfortable up there yeah uh you know we're carrying these 80 pound packs on our backs with everything we need to survive for the entire month we are starving the entire time because pack you can only pack in so much food you know we pack in about 2000 calories a day, but we're burning anywhere from six to eight. Uh, we got caught in crazy weather. It's constantly freezing cold. I mean, we had some days that were negative 20. Uh, even the silence and solitude of nature is totally eerie. If you're coming from a, from a city, right? right? Wild animal encounters. And we got put in these positions where would we have decided we're going to quit or failed? Like it could have actually been perilous. Mm-hmm. And this is like, totally unlike my life at home, right? It's totally unlike modern life. And when I come back to modern life, I can see that. I'm like, oh my God, like our world is so different Uh than it used to be for thousands and thousands of years. Because what we were doing up in Alaska was much like life was for 2.5 million years of human history. We were hunter-gatherers. This is what we did. We had to be out in the elements. We had to face the elements. We had challenges. Life was uncomfortable. And today... We've essentially engineered these worlds of constant comfort where we wake up in soft beds. We live at 72 degrees. We don't have to really put in any physical effort to live, to work, any of that kind of stuff. Um, And so being a health journalist, I sort of wonder, okay, well, what are the consequences of this tip we've done into these lifestyles of constant comfort and no effort. Mm -hmm. And so I start reading studies, right? I read like thousands of studies. I read government, old government documents. I read um, ancient texts and I start traveling the world. I go to, uh, I meet with people like researchers at Harvard, doctors at the Mayo Clinic, special forces, soldiers, uh, Buddhist leaders in Bhutan, geneticists in Iceland. I'm I'm just, I'm everywhere. And these, uh, all these sort of resources I read, these studies and these people that I meet with, they all kind of show in their own way that a uniting factor to improving your physical health, your mental health, and even your spiritual health is to weave a lot of these evolutionary discomforts that we used to face in our past back into your life. Right. Like once the world tipped into comfort and everything became easy and effortless, it's great. Don't get me wrong. Like it's amazing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm but we no longer have any of these moments that sort of push back at us, that make us face these discomforts that we used to face in the past. And there's, there's definitely consequences to that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I talk about it all the time. Putting yourself through physical discomfort can translate to so many areas of your life throughout the day. Darren and I both have corporate you know, business jobs, and it, it would be very, very easy for us to wake up in the morning, yeah. sit at our computer for 12 hours, and then go to bed, and then repeat and do it all over again. We To, to do the things that we do on a daily basis does requires zero movement. Right. It's literally, you can be right in front of a computer. And so what you're saying is so true. A lot of us live that way. Mm-hmm. And, and we've reduced everything down in a good way, but also in a negative way to making it just what's convenient. What's the most convenient thing that we can possibly do? Right. And so... For you to write this book, it, it, it was really speaking to me uh, because it's a lot of the thoughts that I had. Now, you've done, like you said, way more research than I have, um, but very, very true, a, a lot of things. So, so let's talk about some of this. Stuff. We're not going to talk about everything because we, you know, we want to make sure people pick up the book, 
uh, especially the trip to Alaska. We're, we're not going to touch on that. Because we you have know, to touch on well, a little bit. Look, I, I think a little the, bit, but we don't want to give it away because you got to read the book. Yeah, you definitely have to read the book. I, I guess when I go back and, and, and start to think about the book is is when you you and you met Donnie and you guys were in Bay, in in, Los, uh, in Nevada and you go on the first trip and you come back and you got to start preparing for you know going to Alaska and to hear that that story of the preparation and the expectation and you you actually trained and you lost a little you lost a little weight and then you get there and they look at you and they go dude you should have kept some of that weight on right <laughs> but i i got to go through yeah. this one the plane ride you oh. got to give us the plane ride in man just okay so first of all if you want to get to the arctic it's essentially a series of plane rides and each plane gets smaller than the next. So you start on like a 747, then you get on something slightly smaller and slightly smaller and slightly smaller until I find myself standing on this runway. I I mean, it's really just like a little tarmac in the middle of nowhere in a town called Kotzebue, Alaska. It's population. It's above the Arctic circle population, like 2000 people. Mm. And I'm looking at this plane and it's like the size of a Snickers bar with wings, right? <laughs> and um, thing is like freshly painted. And I'm like, like I don't like flying in a 747, much less something right. like that. But we uh, we get in this. Uh, we're ta- kind of talking about flying. Donnie is. Uh, I, I don't know. He's just got to screw loose a little bit. Like we're standing on the runway, and he's going like. Yeah. So these plane flights, they're really, really dangerous. They, they crash all the time. They're small, the weather, but you know, don't worry. I got the best pilot I could. Uh, and then he starts telling me about how there's this other pilot, you know, whose name is Mike. And well, Mike actually recently crashed his, his plane. Um, but we're not going with Mike. Well, it turns out we needed two planes to get there. So Donnie goes with this pilot that he says is like top gun, me and this other guy who's with us, William, he's like a cameraman for Donnie. We get in this plane and we're just sitting there waiting. And I'm just, you know, I'm like, oh my God, why am I doing this? The guy gets in, turns around, goes, hey, I'm your pilot. My name's Mike. And it's just like, this is the guy who crashed the plane. Yeah. Like, oh my God. Yeah. But I'm in, right? I'm strapped yeah. in. Yeah. That's the point. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. It was, uh, it was definitely nerve wracking to say the least. And like that, that this is like the welcome to the Arctic thing, yeah. right? You know, it's like, this is the first, this is the first step of getting out there. <laughs> and once we're out there, we actually have to take an even smaller plane that can only fit two people seated like a bobsled team to oh. get to our final destination. And it's, mm. um, it's not even made with metal. What they do is they basically get a frame and then they wrap it in this stuff that's essentially duct tape more or less. So it can be as light as possible. (laughs) And it's just like, no wonder so many planes crash in Alaska. We're we're doing paper airplanes up here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned the, this trip, he said it's going to be 50, 70, a hundred times more dangerous. And that's not it. That's before you even get there. there yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just getting there is the, is the dangerous part. So like I said, you got to check out the book yeah. to, to get all the details of the trip to Alaska. There were some things that I did pull out of the book that I would love to discuss here just as a teaser. One of those is the, and this was fascinating to me. I don't know if you got to this part, Darren, the Masogi challenge. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Explain what a Masogi challenge is. Let's talk about that for a second. Want to take a quick break from the episode and tell you guys about a brand new partnership. 
because you guys listen to the podcast, uh, companies are now coming to us yes. and wanting to be a part of this. Yeah. And that's 100% because of you guys. So wanted to tell you about an exciting new partnership. Man, this is have. a great, great partnership. And it's a long-time friendship that I've had with Choctaw Casino and Resort, located uh, in Durant, Oklahoma, just across the Red River here. Uh, easy drive, great people, great resort. The new renovations going on. Got a fantastic pool that's outside. So if you got kids, if you have kids, or if you just want to get away uh, alone with your wife, your girlfriend, uh, whatever, your partner, doesn't matter what it is, go over to uh, uh, Choctaw Casino Resort. Have a great time. Again, we always talk about relationships on this podcast. We have a great relationship with Walt, Walter Allen, who's over there, and, and the people over at Choctaw Casino have just been wonderful. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, you don't have a wife and a girlfriend at the same time. Yeah, a little bit of both, <laughs> but have a good time anyway. But yeah, like Darren said, go check them out. Choctaw Casino and Resort. Now back to the episode. So I meet this guy. His name is Marcus Elliott. Um, he is uh, he's far out guy. He uh, he. Got himself through college by counting cards. He would go to uh, Burning Man back when it was like this little thing just mm-hmm. full of weirdos. So he's he's a far out guy, but he's also insanely brilliant. He got his MD at Harvard. And while at Harvard, he decides, you know, I want to get into sports science. So he doesn't go the typical doctor route. His first job out of Harvard Medical School is a job with the Patriots. Mm-hmm. Now, when he got on the team, this was, I think, the early 2000s, they had a lot, they had a super high injury rate, especially with hamstring injuries. Now, at the time, athletic training is basically, we're going to tweak some sets and reps and maybe some exercise. Like, there's not that much science behind it, right? So, he goes in with his big brain and focus on data, and he does all these very customized programs to focus on this one injury problem they have, which is hamstring injuries. And he drops it down from 26 to three a season. And they really start winning. Of mm. course, you know, Tom Brady helps. The, right. go, the goat helps. helps. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's influential in that, you know, keeping guys on the field. Mm-hmm. From there, he was the MLB's first performance director. Mm-hmm. And now he owns a company called P3. And they have a contract with the NBA. And what they do is they use... Um, really deep data and algorithms to map uh, player movement. Mm-hmm. So they can they'll attach all these reflective things to players and they'll have them go through all the different movements they would make in the game. Yep. And so using this data, they can basically say, look, the way, for example, your move, your knee is moving. Uh, we think you have a 50% chance of getting an ACL tear this season. And this is based on mm-hmm. thousands of other examples. They can also tell you, you know what, you're really, really good at this skill. So you should develop that because that's something that it's kind of like this little untapped gold mine that you're not leaning into. So I told you all that to basically tell you that one, this guy is really smart Two, He is very data and science oriented, but he also realizes that what improves everyone from pro athletes to the average human can't always be measured. So to get into those qualities that you just can't track with science, those sort of inner, you know, that inner whatever gear that certain athletes have, Mm -hmm. he does this thing called Masogi challenge. And it's based off this ancient Japanese myth that is essentially a hero's journey. So you have this uh, in the story, you have this hero who, you know, trans goes in, leaves this comfortable world, goes down into this really trying middle ground. He really struggles. And then he, but he manages to break through. 
And he comes out on the other side, an improved person, just better in body, mind, and spirit with better capability. So he'll get, he'll get guys. And, um, based on this idea, he gets guys a lot. Some of them are pro athletes. Some of them are just, you know, friends, whatever. And they do what they call them a soaky challenge. So every year, once a year, they pick some big, weird physical task <laughs> in nature mm-hmm. and they decide they're going to try it. They're going to tackle it. Now the rules of Masogi are one <laughs> that it must be really hard. Yeah. Yes. And they define really hard by saying you have to have a 50% chance of finishing right. a true 50% chance. So this thing better scare the crap out of you, right? right? You're like truly not sure if you're going to be able to do it. And number two is that you can't die. That, that one's pretty simple. <laughs> right? that rule. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, and then there's a couple guidelines. Um, one of the guidelines is that it should be weird and kooky. And this is so you can't compare yourself to other people. Cause a lot of times we go out and do physical things just to compare ourselves. Right. It's like no. my neighbor ran a three Oh five marathon. I'm running a three Oh three. That's my right, goal. Right? right. But that's comparison chopping. You're not really doing it for you. You're doing it for some other reason. And then uh, the second guideline is that you don't advertise Misogi on social media. That goes back to the fact that who are you doing this for? You doing this to get some likes and followers, or are you doing this to learn something about yourself? And so they have done things like one year, they, they get this 85 pound boulder (laughs) and they walk it five miles underneath the Santa Barbara channel. So one guy would dive down, pick it up, walk 10 yards, drop it, come up the next guy so on and so forth until after five hours, they've moved this boulder across the channel. They've done pretty simple things where they'll, you know, go out and just, okay, that's the farthest mountain we can see. Let's try and get there in a day. Mm. Now what happens is, as you're doing something like this, you get into this middle ground where you really doubt yourself. You're like, I've bitten off more than I can chew. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I can actually do this. This seems like, I'm going to have to quit. But by putting one foot in front of the other or whatever it is you're doing, if you're swimming one, one more stroke, you all of a sudden reach this edge that you thought was like where your tipping point is, where your stopping point is. And then you look back and you realize, well, Oh, I thought that was my edge. And yet here I'm still going. So Mm -hmm. that edge is in a new place. And that becomes really enlightening because you realize you've sold yourself short. It's like, okay, I finished this thing that I really didn't think I could finish. And if I sold myself short there, what else in my life am I selling myself short on? Yeah. It really asks you, you, it opens up a lot of questions in your mind. (laughs) Then number two is like, you face some real fears out there that are really similar to the fears uh, and challenges that we used to face in our recent past. And then when you go back into your sort of modern normal life, stuff like giving a presentation in front of your boss becomes a lot easier. Right. You know? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's about the experiences. You, yeah. When you think about challenge today or in the past, rather, um, even think like a thousand years ago, humans, humans face really legit challenges, even a couple hundred years ago, you know, and that could be moving from a summering to winter grounds. And let's say you have to, go over some mountain pass and the weather's coming in. Um, it could be from something like a hunt 
right? Mm -hmm. It's like you're low on food. We have to go out on this really epic, dangerous hunt or else we're going to starve. It could be from like a tiger in the bushes, you know? Mm -hmm. And every time we would complete one of these challenges, we would learn something about ourselves. We would grow as humans. We would improve in our ability to just take on the world more or less. Mm -hmm. But nowadays we don't have those, you know? (laughs) I just mentioned like giving a presentation, like that is our challenge. Right. Right. That's not really tapped. That's not really teaching us that much about ourselves. There's not a physical element. There's not an emotional element. Um, there's not really a spiritual element either, which a lot of these had. And so sort of the message of Misogi is that I want to reintroduce these metaphorical tigers back into my life so I can learn something about myself and come back into my normal life improved. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the big challenge, it's, it's interesting because while you're going through it, you think this is the worst thing I've ever done. This is the hardest thing I've ever done. How am I ever going to do this? And then you look back on a year later, you look back on, man, I'm so thankful for that moment. Yeah. I am so grateful that I went through that. So Masogi, if I'm, if I'm hearing correctly, is just an opportunity to give yourself more of those moments of clarity. They're controlled somewhat, control opportunities so that you can look back. Because I think the Masogi challenge is only once a year, right? That, is, is, yeah, usually once sort of got, yeah. So you can look back the rest of that time and think, how did I improve? How did I make myself uncomfortable during, the, during this past year? Yeah, and that's the thing, I mean, you know, in, in reading that and, and talking about the Masogi Challenge, you always want, you know, as far as us, we live in this comfortable world, right? We always want to be comfortable. We don't want to put ourselves in position whether to fail. Like, you know there's a 50-50 shot that, that you could fail and, you know, the other part of it is the other rule is don't die doing it. But, <laughs> but there's, there, we don't want to put ourselves into that situation. But it's also, you know, in reading this book, and, and I got to get go there now, in reading this book, what really changed my mindset, my entire life, Michael, I've been the guy that says you just continue to go. I've been working since I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. You go, 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 and go, go until you fall asleep at night. And then the next day you get up and you do the same thing. And it, when I was reading this book, there's, there's, when you started to talk about silence and how impactful science, silence is and how, how impactful nature is mm-hmm. to, to the human being, like you, that, was, that was different. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. When you think about the environments that humans evolved in, yes, we were outside, we were outside all the time, yeah. right? Nowadays, people spend 95% of their time indoors. Uh, the outdoors in the past too, were also eerily silent. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that because when I'm standing on the tundra in Alaska in the morning, it is silent. Unlike any silence I had ever experienced. I mean, you stand there for a minute, you start to hear your heartbeat. You start Mm -hmm. to hear the blood that's running into your brain. I mean, it is that silent, but because we've developed so much and we live in, you know, a world where TVs are always on cars are honking, the air conditioners buzzing, et cetera, et cetera. We don't experience that. So because we evolved in these sort of outdoor quiet environments, that probably it seems to give us something that we need that Mm -hmm. we've been removed from. So there's this concept called the nature pyramid. And I met with a researcher who's at Northeastern and she's fascinating because she's, I don't even know she's 30 Um, so she's really like raised on generation iPhone, right? Mm -hmm. She got her first cell phone when she was like 12 and 
the nature pyramid essentially says this. It's kind of, you can think about it like the food pyramid, except instead of saying, eat this many vegetables and this many of meat, it tells you how much time you should go outside and in what type of nature. So at the bottom of this pyramid, it basically says uh, three times a week for 20 minutes, you should go into any type of nature you can find near your house. This could be like a park in the city. It's like Central Park, just any park, right? Even a tree-lined street. And that's associated with really big decreases in stress and also increases in your ability to focus. At the second level of this pyramid, basically says you should spend five hours a week in more sort of out there nature. This is the stuff that you could find at like a state park. So it's a little bit wilder, but it's not you know, it's not super right. backcountry. The very tip top of this pyramid is uh, three days, at least three days a year in the backcountry. Now, this is really fascinating because when you look at the brain waves of people in modern life, uh-huh. we tend to live and exist on these brain waves that are called beta waves. Now, these are like super, just picture super spiky, frenetic, go, 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 go. Uh-huh. Right. Get a job when you're 12. Keep on working, working, working. <laughs> right. Yep. And this, this serves us in a lot of ways. Don't get me wrong. But we also don't have these moments of downtime where we rest, reboot and reflect. After three days in more backcountry nature, this is stuff that's more out there. If you're not a nature person at all, you could get this in like a, a cabin staying, mm-hmm. you know, off the grid a little bit. Um, people start to ride these waves that are called alpha waves. And these are the exact same waves that are found in really experienced meditators, like people who have been meditating for like 10, 15, Mm. 20 years. And they seem to reset and revive our thinking. They're associated with a lot better uh, scores in creativity, a lot lower rates of depression, a lot lower rates of anxiety, really huge increases in just happiness and life satisfaction. So it's almost like this annual reboot. Mm. Now the, the, Crazy thing about all this research is that all of what I just told you, it gets canceled out if you bring your cell phone along on this. <laughs> and, and this is because um, phones capture our attention in such a way that is, I mean, it's anxiety inducing, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. like your brain, our brains today are always focused on the outward in the form of screens and, and whatever it might be. And when you're focused on the outside world, your brain is actually working really hard we don't have as much time as we used to, to sort of go inward and just like let our ideas sort of churn out. And of course, most of those ideas are totally wacky, but occasionally you get a good one. Right. And it's right. like, Oh, wow. Maybe there's something that uh, can improve my life in there. I, 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 I'm looking at Darren because even before I read your book, I've said this to Darren multiple times. You don't ever give yourself time to just be you and be creative. And I, I'm guilty of it. We're, we're all guilty of it. So I'm not just pointing out Darren, but it's funny you say that. And I'm glad that science actually backs up my crazy yeah, But thoughts. you know, I did have the experience. So it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was in the back country, but it was in how I could relate to it. I couldn't relate to exactly what you were doing in Alaska, but I went hunting, but what was it about six months ago, five or six months ago for the first time. Oh, cool. And it was hog hunting. Yeah. In the middle of nothing. And my black yeah. ass was out there. <laughs> and I was like, man, what in the hell is going on? But I came back and the first thing I said to 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 Ben was, I've never experienced silence that way. And it was so peaceful. 
I mean, we sat there. We didn't see anything. We didn't see any hogs. We didn't shoot anything. It was just peaceful. And it was the first time I could let go. Like I, I, and I started thinking about things in my life that where I was in my life and what I wanted to accomplish. But it was, it was a time to where, and, and I could really relate to where you were saying when you walked out of the tent, you just sat there in silence. Yeah. And, and enjoyed nature, so that was yeah. that was astonishing. Yeah, man. and that's another thing you talk about is is the ability to be alone. Yeah, you know, we actually punish people with something you say. We actually punish people with solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. So why do we have so much trouble being alone? Well, because yeah, we. I mean, think of um, what do we do with prisoners who act out? We yeah. put them in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. What if you're a kindergartner? who smacks another kid, you get put in time out. Right. So society has framed, um, being alone as punishment and we don't, we feel uncomfortable being alone because of this. So nowadays people just really avoid time that's alone. And even I argue in the book, even with, even when you are not with anyone around you, we're usually with another person in the form of television right. or we're texting someone mm-hmm. or we're whatever. We have all these different ways to, to interact with people through screens and digital media. But it turns out that when you look at all the research, we know that um, being lonely isn't good for you, mm-hmm. but we also know that there's a big difference between being lonely and being in solitude. Now, solitude is electing to be alone and using that time for introspection, getting to know yourself, processing information, coming up with good ideas. And you see this long, long history of solitude being beneficial going back thousands of years. So think, you know, Jesus went out in the desert alone for 40 days, right? The Buddha exited the palace gates He's alone out in the world getting to know himself. And even people like Abraham Lincoln, when he would write, he would often try and go sort of semi off the grid and spend as much time alone as he could, because it really kind of gives you some time to get to know yourself and figure out what you sort of want to do with life and come up with ideas that are different. You know, it's, it's great to have a strong social support network. I love that. I advocate for that but you also want to be able to build this gear where I can be alone. And increasingly, I think in our world today with how connected and hyper stimulated Mm, we are and how we've framed solitude, a lot of people don't have that. They feel uncomfortable being alone. Yeah. Yeah, We we just had this discussion the other day about, about our kids. You know, we're, we're both fathers and and we have a third co-host wasn't here today, but he's a father as well. And we were talking about how, you know, back when we were growing up with no internet, you know, and you had to be outside and play, like you knew where your kids were. Obviously, physically, you knew where they were. Now it's, yeah, my kid can be next to me, but where is their brain? Their brain's in that phone, and who knows what they're researching and looking up and, and looking after. So the, to your right, so the access to information is a great thing, but it can also be very dangerous, which is, leads me to another thing that you talked about, removing obstacles for kids and how it relates to anxiety. Talk to us about the relationship between doing something physically difficult or, or coming against a challenge and, and how it can actually reduce our anxiety levels. Yeah, so in 1990 is when you start to see the rise of helicopter parenting, which mm. is you know just over-parenting everything, to removing challenge and uh, danger from kids' lives. And the reason that happened is because 
there were a couple high profile kidnappings that got just a ton of media attention. Now, the reality is, is that kidnapping wasn't really any different than it had been throughout, you know, the last 50 years. But for whatever reason, parents at the time started thinking, oh, if I let my kids outside to go play and do their own thing, they could get kidnapped. Mm -hmm. I can't let them go out and do that. So helicopter parenting starts. All this challenge and this time to sort of be outside and learn about yourself. You know, you get in fights, you fall, you get scuffed. You face all these challenges in the world that Mm -hmm. sort of teach you how to be a person when you're a kid, right? That gets removed. And so you see in those generations born after 1990, rates of anxiety and depression start to skyrocket. And this is because if you, let's say you are a 20 year old and you're in college and you've never had any real challenges in your life and you haven't sort of had to, you know, get in arguments with other kids on the playground and stuff. When you get in a classroom or something and all of a sudden, you know, I'm a professor at UNLV. If I challenge your idea, well, how do I react to that? Mm -hmm. I've never had anyone tell me I'm wrong or call me out. It becomes like, it becomes this big challenge that, that people, we just, they just have an outsized view of how scary it is. Shouldn't be scary at all, but they think it's scary because they've never had anything actually scary happen to them. So, and this gets back into the idea of rites of passage, right? So through all of time and all these different cultures, these cultures would do rites of passage. And this was, this could be something like uh, the Maasai tribe would do a lion hunt for their youth. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Inuit would do, uh, it would go out and hunt, I think it was caribou and seals. Um, But also a lot of native American tribes would do something similar where they would send young people out to be alone for five days in the wild. And they just kind of had to survive. The idea behind this is that like, look, you are at point a in your life. And for you to really serve the tribe and be capable and confident and all the things we want out of someone and someone who's older in the tribe, we need to get you to point B. Uh And to do this, what we're going to do is we're going to send you on this rite of passage because that's going to teach you a lot of skills, capabilities. It's going to teach you a lot about yourself. And so by doing this, when you come back into the tribe after five days or 30 days or however long it is, you're going to be that point B and you're going to be able to sort of move on to this next phase in your life. You're literally a new person behind this. This is based on the work of Joseph Campbell, who, you know, identified the hero's journey and we don't have those anymore. And I think that, you know, they've slowly been removed from life. And I think that part of being a young person before 1990 was having all this time where you're kind of out, you know, having these trials and, they definitely aren't around as much and it's increasingly becoming safer. So now there's this idea of snowplow parenting, right? Where parents are just like <laughs> anything and everything just gets snow plowed out of the mm, way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought that was a great analogy. But that's how it, I mean, honestly, that's how it is. We have play dates now. So you, you it's always in a, in a controlled way as far as bringing my, my son to his friend's house and we get everybody together and we have those moments. And that's, that's exactly what it is. I remember the day when my mother used to always say, hey, when the lights go down, the street lights come on, yeah. street lights come on, you better be in the house. Yeah. Outside of that, we were gone. Yeah, gone. Yeah. Out of the house. For sure. So what you're totally. saying is that you have to make friends for your kids. Well, 
Kind of, sort of. <laughs> kind of, sort of. I mean, it kind of is that way. You just don't let your kid outside yeah, to go yeah. play. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. sending my four-year-old. I'm, I'm sending him out on a man's journey. He's, he's going he's gonna to grow up. How about you send yourself on a man's journey <laughs> and get, and get with point. Michael on the next Masogi? Good, good point. There good we point. go. Yeah, yeah. So, so we've touched a lot on, you know, the last thing I want to touch on the book here, you know, before we wrap up. We've touched a lot about, obviously, the mental side. We've touched some physical, but let's talk a little bit about physical activity. How we used to be, you know, back back in you know years ago to what we do now. Let's talk about the physical aspect and why it's so important to move your body. Yeah. So when you look at how humans evolved, we were fourteen times more physically active than we are today, mm-hmm. and we would do, and we were like multi-tool athletes. We were really great at distance running. We were pretty strong. We had really great movement patterns because we didn't have chairs that we sat in all day. Mm -hmm. Like even just being at rest back in the past meant you had to like sit on the hard ground and you were constantly fidgeting or you were in the squat position and holding that. Right. So people in the past were extremely physical, physically capable. And then we started engineering our worlds to be, you know, like they, like they are now where we sit in sort of soft chairs and we're behind screens all day. We've engineered all movement out of our lives. And this is why you see these rates of chronic disease are skyrocketing, right? It's like now the average person, the thing that's probably going to kill you is heart disease Mm. and heart disease is a consequence of the fact that we have too much easy access to food and we don't really have to move for it at all. Mm -hmm. Like our fitness level, we are becoming as a species as unique for our lack of fitness as we are for our really smart brains. Cause every other right. species in the wild has to move around. Right. So, but what I think is interesting is I worked at men's health for a lot of years. I still write for him a lot. And even how we approach exercise in the modern world is to try and kind of make it as comfortable as possible. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you think about the average gym, it's like, perfectly temperature controlled. I'm going to go on this elliptical and do these kind of weird movements, you know, for a while. And then I'm going to go to like this weight machine and get everything perfectly. So I just kind of have to do this one movement. And I'm also going to select the weights beforehand. Cause I, you know, I kind of want them hard, but I don't want them too hard. Right. <laughs> In the wild, it's like humans evolve. When you look at the way the human body evolved and is built, we, uh, in terms of the animal kingdom, we're not super fast. We're not super strong. I mean, we were back in the past compared to what we are now, but in terms of other animals, but we're really good at two things. We're really good at covering long distances in the heat. So as we evolved our way to hunt is that we would run these animals down slowly, but surely, and they would have to sprint. They would overheat over time. And then we would kind of keep bumping them, right? Mm. We'd gain on them, bump them. Mm. Eventually the animals would overheat, topple over, we'd spear them. And then this leads to the second thing that we're really good at as, um, in the animal world is carrying stuff for distance, carrying Mm. heavy loads for distance. That's something that no other animal can do. So we would then have to carry this heavy meat back to camp. And that was kind of our two main physical activities. Well, a lot of people run, you see that all the time, mm-hmm. but how many people as a form of exercise, just pick up heavy stuff and carry it. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Yeah. So I, uh, I identified a group of people who do, and that is special forces soldiers. So rucking, which is, um, essentially putting heavy weight in a backpack and just walking 
is the main form of physical training for special forces groups ranging from SEALs to Green Berets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I met with some of these people and they're trying to put it, uh, put rucking at scale. Cause what's really fascinating about, um, rucking. And I met with, uh, Mayo clinic doctors too, who are now prescribing rucking to their patients is because of the way we live now and having to not really move around a lot and being like relatively weak in some strange ways, running can be pretty hard on folks. So the injury rate of running is relatively high. It's anywhere from anywhere from like 20 to 70% mm. in a given year. Uh, but for rucking, anyone can do that without really get, the injury rate is so low because everyone can walk. Right. And if you just add some more weight to that walk, all of a sudden you're hitting not only cardio, but also strength, which is something that most people don't train anymore. So it's just kind of this really easy access point for people to get a lot, a lot fitter and it can work for anyone. You know, if I'm going, I could go wrecking with my mom, I could throw 50 pounds in the pack. Mm. She could use 10 and we can go the same pace, have a good conversation. So it's also social, which I think is important. Yeah. It was was interesting. You were talking about just the caloric burn of rucking versus normal walking i did have a question what if you don't have access to hills and things like that and you're just walking around your you know your your sidewalk yeah we're in dallas man yeah we're 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 flat flat out here yeah if we threw on a you know 50 pounds on our back and and walking around i'm assuming we're still going to get a great benefit out of that but you know maybe not to the extent of we were walking through the mountains yeah well it's basically you can think about it as two to three times the caloric burn of walking. So if you were walking on your normal sidewalk, you'd say burn, I don't know, hundred calories a mile. Well, if you're rocking, if you just add some weight, um, say 25 pounds or whatever, 30 pounds, you're going to be in between 200 and 300 calories mm. for that same mile. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's say somebody reads a book. They say, all right, I've got to get a hold of my physical, you know, physical activity. Where do you suggest people start if they're, fairly inactive if they are living this life that we're talking about that it's sitting in front of a computer all day maybe that's the perfect place is wrecking but where do you recommend people begin so that we can tap back into the way that we evolved i think it's looking for i mean just in terms of starting it's like how do i weave effort back into my day mm-hmm. in any way possible. That's good. Rucking's an easy entry point because like you said, if I'm like, I'm already going to walk the dogs a mile, it's like, all right, we'll just throw on a heavier pack and it mm-hmm. becomes harder. This is like so cliche and simple, but no one freaking does it. Is <laughs> right. Park at the farthest spot you can. Yes. Thank <laughs> you. Tell my wife. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> carry your, carry your groceries, that kind of stuff. Cause look, everyone knows they need to move more. But here's a fun stat for you too. That is the percent of people who take the stairs when an escalator is also available. Mm. We have hardwired drives to avoid exercise, to not want to work out. And so really also, I think that one problem of sort of the fitness industrial complex, if you call it, is oftentimes people are led to feel bad because they don't want to exercise and they don't like it. Yeah, It's like, no, if you enjoy exercise, you are one of the weird ones yes, in the grand right. scheme of time and space, right? So I think giving, like, letting people know, like, hey, yeah, it's totally normal that you don't like this. Yeah. But guess what? It, like, you have to do it. I don't like going to the dentist. I don't like going to the doctor. I don't like having to go to work some days. But it's like, this is just a thing we need to do if you want to yeah. uh, live healthier. Uh, not only physically, but also also mentally. Like if you look at the data, the absolute best thing you can do for your health is 
increase your fitness level, even the slightest, like yeah. fitness beats most medications. Um, it fends off diseases better than anything, even for mental health. Um, it's associated with must much less depression and anxiety. Yeah. It's just like, but we don't have to do it anymore. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. Well, I tell people all the time, being physically strong is one of the best things you relatively strong to what you're capable of is one of the best things you can do for yourself because not only are you more capable physically, you can move things, you can pick up things you can carry, but the things that you can't cheat strength. And what I mean by that is it's a process to get stronger. So what you're learning through that process over time and teaching yourself that I can do a little bit more today. I can do a little bit more tomorrow. I can do a little bit more than I could. Mm. That process is teaching you and translates so well to uh, every other aspect of your life. So I am a full believer that strength training, everybody should be doing some sort of strength training, whether it's your own body weight, whether it's like you're talking about rucking or picking up and carrying, whatever it looks like, the the benefits of it just translate to everything. Yeah. Yeah, But, but, you know, the thing is, is that we read so much out there and it just, you know, depends on the week on, you know, even nutritionist, everything is changing. Like there's so much competition out there. Don't do this, but you should do this. Don't eat this, but you yeah. should. Eat, you know, it's it's everything's always changing. So people are always reading into yeah. things. What you just said is simple. I mean, the simplicity <laughs> of just picking up something heavy. What you yeah. said to me before: pick up something heavy and, and carry it. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> and take you, the will, you will you will take the stairs Part further away. Yeah. Those are those are things that any of us can do. There's no debate there. And what I just I think it was in the book where you said it was seventy percent of Americans are 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 obese. Like, yeah, seventy. I, I think it's seventy two now are overweight or obese, mm-hmm. and that number is projected to be in the eighties in the next That's ten amazing. years. Well, you know, and, and not to compare the two, but just for perspective, you know, COVID took 600,000 American lives. Yeah. Obesity takes 600, over 600,000 lives every year. Wow. So annually, this is, mm-hmm. this is the problem we're doing. But for whatever reason, we've, we block away future thinking for what we want right now. And what we're right now is comfort. Right. <laughs> and mm-hmm. not moving ourselves. And, oh, we'll worry about it when we're 80. But what you don't realize is the quality of life is just going to be so much better if you go through a little discomfort now as opposed to saving it all for when you're 60, yeah. 70, and 80. Yeah, yeah. So how yeah. do you get there, man? I mean, Michael, let's talk about this because you, you went over it a little bit, but how do you get uncomfortable? How do you – I mean, that's got to be a skill in itself because we, it's hard to get there. It truly is to say I'm going to do something that I'm going to put myself in a situation where I'm not sure if I'm going to accomplish it or I'm going to fail. How do you get your brain to get there? I think a lot of people get very worked up about the prospect of being uncomfortable rather mm-hmm. than the actual discomfort. Cause right. when you actually go into that discomfort, you're like, Oh, I can do this. Right. It's this whole run up where like, <laughs> let's say you're starting a diet. Well, I'm going to be hungry. And what happens if I'm hungry? <laughs> I can't do that. Like, so now you're just, that's what you're afraid of. When you, when you actually go time without food, you're like, yeah, I mean, it, it's not my favorite, but I'm like, I'm fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's so much like mental um, thinking that goes into it and fear. And it's like, once you actually get there, it's not that bad. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and you know, it's like, we had this, uh, something that um, a guy I worked with at men's health for a long time said, like, you're never going to regret a workout. You just don't. Mm-hmm. 
Never. Right. Like who's ever regretted a workout, right? Right yeah, after true. you feel so great. And so I think part of it is like realizing that it's not going to be fun, but also you're probably overthinking it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, go and do it, you know, and this go, this is across the board. So in the, in the book, I, you know, identify a bunch of these evolutionary discomforts that we need to face ranging from, you know, the discomfort of exercise to feeling hunger. Again, when you yeah. look at the data, like 80% of eating is driven by reasons other than hunger. This is one of the reasons why we have that 70% stat mm. we just talked about even things like boredom. Like we're not bored. Anymore. Yeah. No. Yeah. Boredom used to be this helpful thing in our lives that told us, Hey, focus your attention on somewhere else because what you're focusing on right now isn't serving you. Well, now our escape from boredom is, you know, watching another cat video on YouTube. <laughs> so it's like we have these easy escapes that aren't really that beneficial anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think part of it is just, just go through it. Like realize mm. there's going to be some pre anxiety that probably isn't rational. And once right. you do it, you realize it wasn't that bad and you improve. And so the next time you do it, if it's exercise a little harder, you're like, oh, that wasn't that easy either. And eventually it's kind of like the idea of Masogi. I'm putting one foot in front of the other. I'm only focusing on the next perfect step, the mm-hmm. next perfect stroke. Mm-hmm. And then when I look back, I can see, oh, I just crossed the Santa Barbara channel with this rock underwater. And you're like, man, I've come a long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I, you've said a ton of, of amazing and awesome things that right there is, is going to stick with me. Yeah. We play this up in our head. We build up this fear and this anxiety so much, and it's never as bad as we think it's yeah, going to be. It so never true. is. We always make it worse in our head than what it ends up being. So you've written the book. You're obviously on a mission. Where, where do you go from here? What's the next step? With your, and, and just remind people, what is your mission? What are, you, what are you hoping that people take away from the book, and where do we go from here? I'm hoping, You know, what's interesting about the book is it, you know, it's, it's this idea of comfort and discomfort is like this overarching umbrella, but it's interpreted in so many different ways that what people find attracted to and are attracted to in the book really varies from person to person. So I think what's nice about that is like some people will read a certain section that just really resonates them and changes one fundamental thing in their life that really moves the dial. And that at the end of the day is what I want. I I want someone to alter their behavior in such a way, come to a realization about themselves and this sort of world we're living in. Cause we don't even realize how comfortable it is. Like we have no idea. We can't, we as humans, our brain is not programmed to think back 2000 years and be like, Oh, I have it so great right now. We only can look back the day before and think like, Oh, you know, things are slightly better whatever. We're just, Mm. our brain is programmed that way. So to be able to have these moments that sort of push back at people and make them change their behavior in such a way that improves their lives. I mean, that's, that's the goal full yeah. stock. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. There's, you know, there's so many things that we didn't touch on no. here but I, because we want people to read the book. Yeah. We, we, we didn't talk yes. about how we view death. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. We didn't talk about how we see life as just a checklist, checklist. that yeah. you're just checking the, the yeah. next thing off. So go read the book. I can't recommend it because more like, highly. I'm going to tell you this, Michael Easter, you paint a picture, brother. Yes. Like you put us in that position to where, damn, I didn't think about it that way. Or the outlook, just 
of, of being in like just being totally uncomfortable or in a position where you can actually you know you're in this position and and, and you actually overcome things mm-hmm. like when you're in that, and that tr- if you're listening to this show right now go pick up comfort crisis i'm telling you because Michael paints this picture. It puts you in a, in, in a position where you're there. You're standing right next to him, and you're going through these experiences at the same time, man. And I, I just I learned so much about myself in, through the, reading this book. And I'm going to start trying to apply. I don't know if I'm going to do the Masogi Challenge, though, brother. I'm serious, no, man. We're, we're, we're already <laughs> thinking. No, I'm, we're not already thinking I'm not carrying boulders. I'm not carrying boulders. Brothers in water. We ain't, you know. I saw it was a Kyle Clo- uh, uh, Culver that, that did this Clover, with. Yeah, 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 yeah Culver did this with. One. Yeah. So I was like, man. I, I yeah, I'm just sitting thinking I couldn't tread water for five hours, no. much less carry Get a boulder, a boulder. <laughs> underwater <laughs> for five hours. <laughs> So, the comfort crisis, you got to go check out the book. Michael, we've got one question, final question that we ask every guest. But before we get there, how can people connect with you? How can people find you? Uh, I'm at EasterMichael.com is my website. I'm pretty active on Instagram as well. That's Michael underscore Easter. And the book is available wherever. And then thank you guys so much for having me on and for the kind words about the book. I'm glad it resonated. And Darren, uh, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to do Masogi. Yes, he is. Oh, brother. I, I probably, <laughs> trust he'll me. get me there. Yes, trust we'll me. get there. We got to figure we're, it out. We're going to come up but with We can't post it on not, Instagram because you can't show. No. See? There you go. That's I true. can't post it. That's, That's right. So I'll do it. Maybe yeah. we go back to your home state of Arizona and do something at the Grand Canyon. That would be nice. Ooh, that would be a challenge. Go. That would there, be, yes. Michael, you're coming with. Yeah. I like yeah. that. That'd I be like good. That. All yeah. right. Last question we ask everybody, and this is more about your journey, um, but you can apply it to, to the book as well. If you could go back to any point in your life and tell yourself one thing, doesn't necessarily mean you go change anything, but if you could just go back and just tell yourself one thing, where do you go and what do you tell yourself? Hmm. That's a great question. And I've never thought about that. I've been pretty happy with the ride I've been on. There have been some bumps, some real bumps and hiccups, but guess what? I learned from those. Those like, I mean, it goes back to what I'm talking about in the book. Going through that, those uncomfortable moments, I learned a lot about myself and I can look back on those and, and say, you know, um, I've done something. I would say, you know, one of my favorite, um, lines is, uh, I have this, uh, guy I know who go, always goes rule number 62. Don't take yourself so damn serious. Mm. And I just love that. Yeah. Right. It's like, <laughs> we can tend to take ourselves so serious and everything. It's mm-hmm. like, I see the world as, you know, I got, I know for sure I got at least this one ride. Right. And if I can try and remain present, not take myself too serious, that is going to give me space in my life to be able to be a better person to those around me. Cause like, Mm. you know, I'm not going to get worked up over someone who cuts me off in traffic or, you know, the service at some restaurant isn't (laughs) what I would like it to be, whatever it is. Like we tend to get worked up about first world problems now. And that can kind of give me some space to realize that most of my problems are first world problems and I can be a better person every day. Love it. Yeah. Love it, man. And we appreciate you, Michael. Thanks yeah. for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, guys. That was a blast. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Awesome, man. Thanks if you're so. ever in Dallas, look us up. Yeah. We'll, uh, we're, we'll be, we'll, as soon as we sign off here, we're going to go plan our Masogi chat. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I man. Like thanks it. again, though, Michael. Really appreciate your time. All right. Thank thanks, you. Man. Thanks, guys.